Hi, I'm Rob Shear, founder of Comfort Cases. With our second season of Fostering Change just coming to an end, we are really looking forward to the launch of season three in November. But until then, we wanted to share some of our best of episodes of the past season. Last week, we re-aired our interview with my incredible friend, Rita Sorensen of the Dave Thomas Foundation. Today, I am thrilled to share with you our interview with Dr. Bruce Perry, who co-authored of the book, What Happened to You? You know, I've read this book several times already, and I cannot imagine another book that each and every one of you should pick up and read. And the fact that he wrote the book with Oprah Winfrey, is it even another win? Yes, Oprah. We had an incredible conversation, well worth sharing again. So please sit back and enjoy however you're listening or even watching, and we'll see you next week. Our foster care system is shattered. And this podcast is about how we as a community can come together to bring about change, change in the system and changing the lives of children in foster care. Hi, my name is Rob Shear. I'm the founder of a national charity called Comfort Cases. I'm an advocate for children in foster care. I'm a public speaker. I'm an author of A Forever Family, but most important, I'm a dad to five of the most amazing kids. Welcome to the Fostering Change Podcast. Well, you know, it's so exciting. It's another Tuesday, and here we are at another episode of Fostering Change. You know, I have to tell you that this particular episode, I never thought would happen. Um, there's so many times for those of you who follow me and have listened to me give speeches, I talk quite a bit about, you know, can you imagine um, what if I didn't? And this episode is truly what happened to you. You know, I am very blunt and honest about my story. You know, as a kid who grew up in the foster care system, um, a child who still at the age of 55 in a couple of months, has the scars of my father who put cigarettes out on my leg. Um, I always think about what happened to me and why did that happen to me? And you know, then to have five kids, my five beautiful, amazing children who arrived in my home with such baggage, and I'm not talking about the trash bag that we talk about at Comfort Cases, but so many things that happened to them prior to coming to my home. You know, I just always, my husband Reese and I, we just tried to deal with it. And then it all changed. And let me tell you what changed. This book, this book, What Happened to You? You know, I heard about this book and I heard about Dr. Perry um, quite a while ago, actually, and immediately purchased it, read it. And there was this, you know, as Oprah would say, this aha moment, you know, I have been very lucky. I have made amazing choices in my life, but they have been very hard. My other nine brothers and sisters haven't had that luck. And so I am so honored today to have Dr. Bruce Perry be our guest on Fostering Change. We're gonna talk about his book. And by the way, we're probably gonna talk about a little bit of the relationship with him and Oprah. But what I really wanna know about is 
what can I do? What can I do? What can I do for the 438,000 children who are sitting in a foster care system? What can I do for my five kids who every single day I have to be reminded of what happened to them? So, Dr. Perry, welcome to Fostering Change. Thank you very much, Rob. It's my uh, honor to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. You know, when, when I actually read the book, and again, I have followed you for quite a while, um, you have totally dedicated your life to understand the fact that, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not always about the label of a child. You know, I remember when my children arrived in foster care and they arrived at various ages. So just to let you know, my youngest was six months. I had two two-year-olds arrive, a four-year-old, and then an 18-year-old. And every single one of them came with some type of diagnosis, whether it was PTSD, defiant disorder, reactive attachment disorder, um, bipolar. You know, the thing I, I, I got out of this and is that the label shouldn't be the first thing we should, we should be talking about. That's absolutely correct. And I, I um, was trained formally as a neuroscientist before I became a clinician. And one of the things that I learned, and as any neuroscientist does, is the complexity of the brain. You know, there, there are literally billions and billions and billions of neurons. These neurons create really important networks by connecting with each other. There are all kinds of uh, places in that process that you can alter function. And so when I started doing my work as a clinician, I was shocked that you could have these incredibly complex human beings and all of them having a different set of genetics, a different developmental history, a different set of strengths and vulnerabilities. And then if they were struggling, we only had a few boxes that we could put them in. You know, you're in the ADD box or you're in the major depression box. And, and I recognized that that really wasn't very useful in really understanding who that child was. And I just started to slowly back away from using labels and move more towards getting to know somebody's personal story. That if you knew somebody's history, all of the stuff that you were seeing in the present kind of made sense. Now, you might not like some of the stuff you saw in the present. You know, you might not like the fact that they're really bad at relationships or that they feel compelled to not be, you know, not be completely open about certain things. And But rather than saying, oh, you lie, you go for some reason, something happened to this kid that he just doesn't feel comfortable or safe telling me that he broke that base. Um, what, what is it? You know, what, so you develop this curiosity about behavior as opposed to coming into the interaction with the authority that, oh, he, he's got ADHD and he's got this, you know, antisocial behavior or he's got some other label. That means that he's going to lie. He's not, he's going to hoard food. He's going to be bad at relationships. He's going to have all these other things. And that I think sometimes um, 
gives you a very distorted understanding of the person. So we've moved away from that. We've moved more towards understanding somebody's history and then looking at them in how they're functioning in the present in a very complex way. You know, how do they think? How do they feel? How do they move? What are their strengths? What are their vulnerabilities? And then we literally think of somebody, the, the assessment we use generates a picture, sort of a reconstruction of how their brain appears to be organized as opposed to a, a label. So, so you know, it, to hear you say that, it's about the story. You know, it, it's something that I have said for many years that each and every one of us have a story. And we never know how that story is going to impact another person. But what, I, what I've gotten from this and from the book and from your interviews, it's also how it impacts us, you know, as individuals, is how, you know, And as I said in the beginning, as we started the show, I mean, my story is not like most stories. You know, I, um, you know, as a kid who grew up in the system, I, my mother had been married six times. We lived in and out of every shelter in Maryland, Virginia, and DC. And the only thing I remember is the monster who lived with us. And I remember Dr. Perry, that we would sit in the room, my brothers and sisters, and we would hear him call our name. And we knew no matter how fast we ran to grab that Pabst Blue Ribbon out of that refrigerator that and got back to that recliner, we were gonna get that cigarette on our leg. It just, it, it, was, it was embedded in us. And the reason I tell you that is because I look now at my brothers and sisters, and by the way, they are the typical what there is expected from our system. You know, high school dropouts, teenage pregnancies, drug overdose, you know. And then I look at my five children, Dr. Perry, and I think, you know, I have a son whose mother was 12 years old when she gave birth to him. 12. He came into the system by the age of two with bleeding of the brain and shaken baby syndrome. And I heard you say that that birth to two is such a unbelievable time in a child's life. Um, is there a way to take that time and make it different? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you think about the brain, you know, and most people, have, you know, we don't teach that much about the brain in regular sort of public school, but it's the, there are a couple of things about the brain that are pretty easy to learn. One of them is that it's organized from a, in a hierarchical way. So there's a bottom part, a middle part, and a top part. And the top part is the part that's involved in thinking and reflecting on the past and planning for the future. And that's the cortex. I think most people have heard of the cortex. But what we know is that during development, the brain develops rapidly, really early in life from the bottom to the top. And so the last part of our brain to develop is this top part. And the first parts to develop are these low parts down here. And one of the things that happens, one of the important part aspects of the lower part of the brain is that there are these really, really important networks that as you get older, sprout up and influence how those higher parts of the brain develop. So if you have something early in life, even in utero, that causes these systems to be abnormal, as they grow, they'll send abnormal signals to the higher parts of the brain, even though you may be in an environment that's consistent, predictable, nurturing, and so forth. 
So if you early in life have chaos, threat, uh, abuse, that system is going to be 10, not always, but it'll tend to be overactive and overly reactive. And then that can have impact on these other parts of the brain. Now, with that said, the good news is that you can always change these systems. And, and, and the better news is that you can change those systems by being consistent, predictable, nurturing, patient. You know, you don't have to have a doctoral degree. Uh, to change that, those parts of the brain. And then when they change, you can have this uh, opportunity for a set of reparative and uh, healthier developmental experiences. And so obviously, you know, I'm assuming that the way you have been raising your children has been creating an environment of loving, predictable, uh, interactive opportunities where even when these kids struggle, that you're still there for them. You're still trying to be consistent. You're still trying to be understanding, even though it's hard at times. But by doing that, little by little by little, those systems change. And, and you're helping these kids grow up in a, in, a, in a healing way. Yeah, well, you know, it's something that we say in our house. It's called unconditional love. And I, there are days that I might not like the choices that they're making, um, but I remind them and my husband Reese remind them every single day, no matter what they do, we're always going to love them. You know, I heard an interview where you and Oprah were talking about her school and we're big advocates of education. We actually have a daughter, Jessica, who lives in Kenya um, that we have been sponsoring since she was 12 years old. She is now at the university. She is 20. I know that she's listening to this. And, you know, I always remind her how proud her dads are because she very similar went through what Oprah had talked about, where all of a sudden she had this school and these girls were acting out and she called you um, and you started talking about post-traumatic stress disorder and which, you know, is something that I've heard about. I know about, I know it from my children. I know it from me, but could you tell our audience truly, you know, because I think that that label is used quite a bit. Um, but I think that people need to understand it. So when Oprah calls you and she's talking about these girls who are acting out and running out of class and things, and immediately you say they have PTSD, how did you know that? And, and truly, what do you feel that definition is? And again, I don't want to hear the clinical part of what all your colleagues, I mean, you're somebody who truly talks about this where people didn't talk about it many years ago. Right, right. <clears throat> well, now Oprah remembers it that I said that, that PTSD, but the, I probably didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying, you know, I, what I probably said because I tend not, again, as we said, as I talked about earlier, I don't tend to give labels, I, I, but I, I tend to talk about phenomenon. So I'm pretty sure I said that those sound like post-traumatic symptoms, not necessarily that you have PTSD. And so what post-traumatic symptoms are, are changes in the way you think, feel, behave that are predictable consequences of experiencing trauma and trauma being a pattern of stress activation that's either prolonged or extreme or completely unpredictable. 
and and sometimes it's all three of those things and um and when that happens your body will make these adaptations such that you're going to have uh, a hypervigilance. You're going to be scanning the environment for potential threat. You tend to have parts of you, the rest of your body tuned up. Your heart rate may be a little bit higher. Um, if you were in an environment as a young child that was unpredictable or threatening, your brain will have used what we call dissociation, which is basically protecting you from the the injuries that were inevitable and painful, unavoidable things. Your, your body helps protect you by having you shut down. Uh, you retreat into your inner world, your heart rate goes down uh, and so forth. And a lot of the symptoms that I was seeing or hearing from Oprah that these girls used were symptoms that indicated a sensitized or overly reactive set of stress responses. And so these girls were having unusual degrees of headaches or abdominal cramps, and they couldn't find anything out, you know, any, func you know, GI problems. Or they were having episodes where they looked like they were having seizures and they would just tune out, but they weren't having seizures. And that's very, very common in individuals who've had these uh, traumatic histories. And so what she was seeing with these girls in the school were, were manifestations of a previous history of uh, exposure to trauma. Wow. Wow. You know, I, I think that each one of us um, experienced trauma in some way or another. It's all how we look at it. And, and the reason I say that is that I, I even believe with you know, fam like my husband is a great example. My husband is, his parents have been married 54 years. He grew up in the Midwest. He's college educated. Um, but I also think that there was trauma within his life. And maybe the trauma was, you know, being a gay male and all of a sudden being pushed the religion on him. And and that's something I, I see, I've heard you address it. And also in the book of, of what happened to you is that trauma doesn't always have to mean rape or abuse or, you know, uh, the neglect. Um, it, 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 is that that's correct? A, that's absolutely correct. And I think that your example of, being a young gay child growing up in a heterodominant world is going to provide a whole set of stressors where there's unpredictability, where there are times when you're given nonverbal and sometimes overt signals that you don't belong, that you, that you're, you are in an out group. So people who feel uh, as if they don't belong, people who are given nonverbal and sometimes verbal and other signals that they're other, as opposed to us, that'll activate the stress response system in these unpredictable and somewhat chaotic ways, but not necessarily extreme, not necessarily um, like, it, like you say, capital T trauma, but it will cause that same uh, impact on the physiology of the brain so that it is in effect a trauma. So I think you're, you're right about that, Rob. I think that that's the, and I hear, I've heard this from so many people who are in an out group and it, you may be in the out group because you are a Cree uh, child and you're going to school in a Caucasian classroom in Northern Canada, 
or you may be a, a, a black child in a white dominant community and culture uh, where you're getting always getting signals that you don't quite measure up or you don't you're not you don't quite belong and and that can cause this this uh, experience internally so, so with that then um you know one of the things that we've always believed in and something that you know i i tell people all the time they they how did i get to where i am then and today i say because of my therapist um you know but i have heard that there is a thing with too much therapy and if you don't it's one thing going every single week to your therapist and by the way i go to my therapist we have a family therapist um, but there's another thing when you're going to a therapist, but then you don't have that healing part with inside your community. Right. Is that something that, you know, is common that we're seeing more and more of? You know, I, it's, uh, Rob, I, I've written a couple things. And uh, the second book I wrote talked a lot about, that. actually, in all the books I've written, we've talked about this, but one of the things about the way the brain is organized and the way human beings are basically designed is that we're relational creatures. We're, we, we are intended to live and work and play in groups. And so huge parts of our brain are dedicated and focused to sort of connecting with, communicating with other people. And now at, at, at the same time, that, that, that neurobiology is so tightly yoked to the neurobiology of reward and pleasure and the neurobiology of regulation. And, and, and so when you're with people and you're getting signals that you belong and you're one of us, you feel pleasure and, and you feel safe. And so what that means is physiologically, you're, you're able to be as healthy as you can genetically and you're getting positive forms of reward. But the modern world, we've sort of invented ourselves away from relationally enriched environments. We have, you know, lots of people live by themselves and they go to work where they're in front of a screen all day. And after work, they go home and they communicate using, you know, screens. And so relative to the natural environment for human beings, the modern environment has got one tenth, one twentieth of the number of relational opportunities. And so that means that people are much more likely to seek out and use rewards that are less healthy. They're more likely to get reward from eating sweet, salty, fatty foods, or get a reward from, uh, you know, using a substance of abuse, you know, that, that gives them a little bit of pleasure. And so the further we get from a healthy relational environment, the more vulnerable we are to stress-related uh, stressors, you know, all kinds of stressors. And, uh, you know, we get pulled to use unhealthy forms of reward. So the, you know, I think one of the, the things about the modern world is we've kind of, we have these unintended consequences of our inventions. You know, so it's great to have the American dream where you have your own house, but when you have your own house, you know, you don't see people as much. And if you've got your own room in your own house and your own TV in your own room, you know, you don't spend as much time even with the people in your own home. And so we've diluted the relational milieu 
that is really necessary for healing following the trauma and really necessary for buffering the present stressors of life. So we have a much more vulnerable population. And of course, when you look at kids in foster care, they're even more vulnerable because they're taken out of their social milieu. You know, their family may have been, you know, destructive, but they may have had it been connected in other ways. They go to a new environment where they maybe will do okay or maybe not. But a lot of these kids get moved and then moved and then moved and then moved. And, and so they're not connected to anybody. You know, and when you talk with them, you say, well, who are you going to have Thanksgiving with when you're 21? Yeah. And they're like, I don't have anybody. I think, I don't know. When I age out of the system, I'm, I'm on my own. Yeah. You know, I, 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 oh, wow. You know, another one of those moments where I think about why I built such a big family um, because I was that kid, like, where was I going to have Thanksgiving dinner or who was I going to open Christmas presents with? Um, you know, I, I, wow, it's so much to take in, you know, and, you know, for me, reading this book and really, you know, I, and I'm just going to tell you like it is, Dr. Perry, I actually thought I had my shit together. I actually, I thought I had dealt with it all. I thought that I was, you know, moving that needle forward, but I, I literally read this book and it was, it was such an eye opener for me because, um, I realize that I have a lot more work to do and I have a lot more work to do for myself, but also for my five children as well. But listen, we're going to take a quick break and um, we're going to come back because I actually had some, you know, I normally don't talk about having a guest on our podcast, but I actually sent out a, a, a social media about you being on and how absolutely thrilled I was. And people actually email me questions that they want me to ask you. And then there are some personal things I want to talk to you about. So listen, everyone, we are so, so absolutely excited that we have Dr. Bruce Perry. Um, the book is What Happened to You? Um, I will tell you that I actually got the book. If you could see all the marks that are inside of it. Um, and also, I actually did the audio book as well. Um, you cannot get enough of it. And I will tell you, as someone who grew up in the system, as a foster parent, as someone who has teenagers who are kids from the system, you got to get this book. You really do. And I say this quite often, the most flattering thing you could ever do is share this podcast because people need to hear about the work that Dr. Perry is doing. And by the way, we're not going to forget Oprah because I do believe that Oprah, um, I said this before, I do not, I, I'm not someone who, I'm not a fan person to people, but what I am is I, I, I follow people that lift me up and that can make me a better human than I was yesterday. And that's what Oprah has done. And that is truly what Dr. Perry has done. So listen, share this on your Spotify, all your Apple platforms, your Google, anywhere you listen to your podcast. And please make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and we'll be right back. This episode of Fostering Change is sponsored by Comfort Cases, a national nonprofit that is inspiring our communities to bring dignity and hope to youth in foster care. You know, for just $10 a month, you can support the Comfort Cases mission to eliminate trash bags from the foster care system. 
For every $10 donated, a Comfort XL duffel bag will be given to a child entering foster care. Please help us be part of the change. Go to comfortcases.org and see how you can help a child entering our foster care system. Well, we are so excited to be back here with Dr. Bruce Perry. Listen, I have said this before, um, you know, go read all the articles you can. You can listen to all the podcasts, but nothing changes the fact of picking up the book and reading what happened to you. You know, I always, Dr. Perry, used to not think about what happened to you. I always was that guy who said, why am I acting this way? Why am I going into relationships that are not healthy? Why, you know, and and I'm very honest in my book, you know, uh, Forever Family, which by the way, I will definitely make sure you get a copy of, you know, my, my issue I had with substance abuse, um, the fact that I've had four suicide attempts um, um, prior to my age of 30, because to me, it wasn't about what happened to me. It's like, why was I doing this? And then I read this book, um, and not saying that that was an excuse, you know, I, I never want people to think that was an excuse for the decisions that I made, but it truly, what happened to me? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I think that that's such an important distinction because a lot of people are, they, they think that when you try to explain why something happened, that you're trying to excuse it. But you really, it, it's, I think it's important to remember that if you don't understand why something happens or the mechanism underneath something or the motivation underneath the behavior, you make a lot of misinterpretations about the behavior. For example, it's really common for a child who struggles in school to, to end up making the teacher feel like it's a personal thing that this kid is just yanking my chain. He knows better because I sat down with him and he knew the rules. And then 10 minutes later, he broke the rule. The only explanation in my head is that he's trying to yank my chain. And, but in reality, if you understand how the brain works, when he's calm and you're talking with him, he has access to all this, the rules of the class up here. But as soon as he gets threatened and his cortex gets shut down, he doesn't have access to the rules of the classroom and he'll do what in that moment seems appropriate, which is do this some sort of fight or flight behavior. And, and so when we, educate teachers, we say, listen, we're not trying to excuse his behavior, but we just want to explain it. Because we think if you understand it, you will, you'll have more empathy towards him. Um, you'll recognize that he's got this overactive stress response that shuts down his cortex because when he was little, he was tossed around like an object. And he was never loved the way you were loved and he wasn't cared for and his development was different from your development. And so he isn't going to react in the same way you do. So, um, you know, you can help him if you don't uh, basically uh, replicate the way the world has misinterpreted, misunderstood him and, and rejected him. So if you kick him out of class, or if you get angry at him, or if you suspend him, or if you punish him, 
with the idea that you're somehow going to help him learn a lesson, you're making a mistake. And in fact, you're just going to be just like everybody else. And, and his little brain is going to go, yep, I was right. Uh, everybody hates me. I'm unlovable. Wow. Which I, happens, I'm sure, to, you've probably seen that happen with some of your kids. I mean, the, yeah. if you don't understand them, you always interpret the moment through your own personal lens. So if what happened to you is that you never had trauma, you never had bad things happen necessarily, and every time you, you, you broke the rules, you knew what you were doing, you assume that this kid, when he breaks the rules, knows what he's doing. Yeah. And that's just not true. When he breaks the rules, he's act. It's like acting. You know, he's functioning like a lizard. You know. But. Gosh. You know, Dr. Perry. I, as I was saying, I um, actually posted about interviewing you, and I've been very, very lucky. I've interviewed some amazing humans, um, people who the true definition, as the title within the title, that are resilient. People that have experienced trauma. People that are healing in their path. And um, I asked them to send some questions. Um, I wanted to know what people wanted to ask you. You know, and so. One of the questions that someone sent to me from a friend of mine who lives up in Seattle, she um, has went through the foster care system, aged out. She said, Rob, she said, if you could please ask Dr. Perry, how does someone stay the course to achieving a goal when they are faced with a setback? Hmm. Well, I, th I love that question because it, uh, I, again, a lot of people think that growth and development are linear, you know, that like, here's my goal, I'm just going to take step forward, step forward, step forward, step forward, step forward. But the reality is, almost all growth, and, and all uh, in any complex or dynamic system is a little bit more like mountain climbing. And if you've ever done mountain climbing, one of the things you learn is that a lot of times you have to go sideways. You know, it doesn't look like you're getting any closer to the top. But in order to kind of get to the route, you've got to go sideways. And, and then there are times when you actually have to climb down before you can climb up. And that's the way development is. Development involves these plateau periods and then a regression before there's a progression. And that's normal development is that way. And so if you, even if you change the language, you know, setbacks aren't, don't have to be thought of as setbacks. They're just a normal reorganizational thing. And, and if you kind of look at why was this setback? Why did it happen? What can I learn? Just like COVID, right? Everybody's had some aspect of their life kind of semi setback by this last year. But the truth is, are there, there's going to be some lessons that we can learn. And so when we're ready to kind of take, start climbing again, let's take the lessons that we learned that, you know, we don't always have to do 100% of our clinical work in person. Maybe we can use Zoom once in a while. If somebody can't make it, in the, make it in, you know, maybe uh, somebody who's got a logistic issue that they don't have to cancel the appointment. Um, maybe we can do a half an hour Zoom call as opposed to I know you can't make it because you have these other things. That's a good thing. That, that's a good thing. You know, there's, there are things that we can, you know, just think about what is there, what have you learned? You know, I, I, I got kicked on my butt. And I thought this ABC was going to happen, but X, Y, and Z happened. So I don't know. What can I learn as I get back up and, and keep climbing? But the key is, you know, 
like Dory said, you know, just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Wow. Yeah. My my daughter Amaya is going to love that you use that. That she's 16 and she still loves that movie. And you are right. And you you brought up the COVID thing. And that's something that I really think that, you know, I know how it's affected some people and their mental health, you know, but we did exactly what you just said is that we just changed things up. I mean, we didn't stop our therapists. We just zoomed with them now. And, you know, it was funny. I was talking to my therapist, Dr. Rich, the other day, and I said to him, I said, you know, we're, we're all vaccinated now. Our state and our county has opened up and, you know, he's back in the office. And I said, you know, Dr. Rich, um, I actually like this zooming with you because i know you know sitting in a room with you is great too but you know i don't feel so stressed or rush oh my gosh i've got to get to my therapy appointment and and here i know i just log on and he he said to me he said you know rob he said we can still continue to zoom you know so you're right about that you know it's it's amazing to me the fact that people we are resilient um, it's like children. I say, you know, I have a son who has fetal alcohol syndrome, and um, I always remind him that he is the most resilient kid I've ever met in my entire life, because this is a kid we were told was never going to walk, never going to talk. And um, to let you know, he is 14 years old. He reads on a sixth grade level. He's an honor student. Um, but that's resilience to me. Dr. Perry, I have, I have another question that someone asked me, and they said, um, this is someone who says, when, when we're raising a child with trauma um, in a family with other children, what are some good strategies or tools to ensure the child who is exhibiting the trauma um, inspired behavior, aggressiveness, violence, does not create a home environment or even more trauma, especially for the other children in the home? Now, I'm going to talk about that. I saved this question for last, Dr. Perry. I have, as I said, five amazing children. My oldest son is 20. He arrived at the age of 18 um, from foster care, did not expect to have a late, you know, adoption, met this kid, um, heard his story. And I just knew that my heart, my husband's heart and our home had, had, had a place for him. And then my daughter who was 16, she arrived at the age of four and her brother Makai was two. Um, they were found in an abandoned crack house and um, he has tibia trauma, you know, failure to thrive, all of that. And then my other two babies arrived. My son, who was two years old, with his little brother, who was six months. Their mother was 12 when she had the first one, 13 when she had the second. Came in the system with bleeding of the brain, shaken baby syndrome, three broken ribs. At the age of 11, um, after spending over 10 years with us, as you said, with consistency, love, just everything you can imagine that I was hoping we were doing right as parents, my son um, has gone to a totally different side. And the trauma within the house from his behavior um, has really upset the apple cart, I would say. And as this amazing human sent me a message, I thought, oh my gosh, this is the key way to tell, ask Dr. Perry, 
what do I do? What do we do? What does she do when you have other children in the home who, by the way, they have experienced trauma and I'm not saying that, but their actions are not at a state where one of the children are. Are there tools that we should look at or strategies? Well, first of all, as, as you well know, Rob, because I'm sure you've talked to hundreds, if not thousands of foster parents and adoptive parents. This is not an unusual challenge where you will have one child who, for whatever reason, is struggling mightily. And part of the way they manifest their struggle is that they stir things up in a family. Uh, they lash out at siblings. They even hurt siblings sometimes. They, they cause just overwhelming chaos in the home. And it's really hard. It's very, very hard. Um, and so there's a couple of things that we think are really important. One of the things that we find in general is that children who, where there's a mismatch between the, uh, the world's expectations of what they'll do and their biological abilities, the bigger that mismatch is, the more there are misunderstandings and conflicts and disruptions. And so we recommend that kids that are that, that are struggling like that get some form of assessment to to figure out they may be a 10 but they might have the social skills of a four-year-old they might have the cognitive skills of a seven-year-old they might have the motor skills of of a 10-year-old so they have splinter development and i would expect that probably to be the situation with some of your kids that you know they're chronologically at one age but they're developmentally at a different age and so the more you misjudge that, the more often there are going to be these misunderstandings that lead to explosions and conflict in the house. So that's one thing. The second thing is that there are a number of um, kind of problem solving approaches that can be really, really helpful with kids that are struggling like this. And the one that I sort of default to when I think about this is like collaborative problem solving. Um, uh, colleague of mine, Stuart Avalon, is a co-developer of collaborative problem solving. And it's a wonderful sort of guided way that any adult and, and, and child uh, can learn how to begin to diffuse some of these problem behaviors in ways that are respectful and relational and ultimately um, can help restore a little bit of calm in the home. But, you know, the, the key thing is it's, it, this is a lot of work, as you well know. It, it, the amount of energy, the amount of problem solving, you know, you'll find times, I'm sure, you, you know, that, that the, your partners will have different ideas about how to solve an issue, and that leads to a whole different set of issues. And, and pretty soon, it can cause complete chaos in a family. And... Um, that's where we think, you know, the, the third thing is, and I've, I've kind of alluded to it, is if you have external help, it really, it's useful. You know, parenting at baseline is very hard. Parenting a difficult child is exponentially harder. And then parenting a difficult child with other children is exponentially harder than that. Now, if you, you remember what I said earlier about that we're relational creatures, remember that under normal circumstances, in the natural condition, human beings lived in multi-generational, multi-family groups. And so for every four, five, six-year-old child, 
there were at least four developmentally mature people in the living group, grannies, aunties, older cousins, who would do things like teach, discipline, nurture, uh, all the kinds of stuff that go with taking care of the family. And so we've put ourselves in the modern world in this really awkward position where we've got a couple of adults who are supposed to be taking care of lots of young kids with needs. And that's a hard thing to do, even if all the kids are developmentally on track. And, and when they get off track, the, the work of the parent becomes Herculean. I mean, and, and, and we expect too much of, of ourselves. So my answer to is basically, all right, listen, it's a challenge, solvable, but you need help. You need more bodies, uh, you need developmental understanding, and you need to figure out how to bring regulating, rhythmic, relational stuff into uh, the family environment, which you probably do a lot of already. It's just that you might need some coaching help to figure out how to enrich that. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree. And I love that. And I hope that our listeners and our viewers um, have gotten as much out of this conversation that I have gotten. Dr. Perry, I'm going to tell you, um, first of all, thank you. Thank you. You know, um, who would have thought? And that's what I think quite often. Who would have thought? Who would have thought the kid, you know, when I was a senior in high school, it was the fall of 1984. Um, I walked home it walked into the front door and there was my trash bag. And I became a homeless kid because I turned 18. And I literally lived on the streets the entire senior year of high school. And I expected my life to not be where I'm at today. And I say that because who would have thought that I would be having the opportunity to speak to you, to be educated by you, to read such an amazing book you know, what happened to you? I, you know, I actually was on the phone today with two, um, they were two social workers and someone who runs a juvenile detention facility. And I said, I'm sending you this book because I, you, you got to read this book because I really think that if you read this book, you'll understand the mindset of so many kids who are within our system. And again, I remind people all the time, kids are in foster care because of choices other people made. Um, but I've got one last question for you. And I didn't bring this up the entire time, but I wanna know, because I know that my listeners and our viewers wanna know, how was it working with Oprah? <laughs> Oprah's awesome. You know, I, I've known her for 30 years and, um, She's one of the smartest people I know. She's has a big heart. She's very funny. Um, and she works probably harder than anybody I know. It's crazy how much work she does. Um, but it was fun. I mean, I, I've always had fun working with Oprah. And, um, and, and we have similar sort of values and views about trying to make the world better. So it was, it was a fun project. And um, I have to say, though, I'm so happy that it's winding down that I'm not used to the media stuff. The media attention is crazy. And I'm glad that's almost over because it's not a world that I 
am comfortable in. So. Well, I read that about you. I read that you're really not this out, you know, first of all, I know that you love to hike. I know that you love bread and cheese, soft cheese, by the way. Yeah, I did my research. Um, but I was really surprised to hear that you are not that person who, um, that, and, and how, I think I read it in a New York Times article, you're, you're shy. Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm actually um, sort of, I mean, I don't know if it reaches the level of like social anxiety, but I mean, my, I would, my preference would be to just um, do my little bits of clinical work and research and write and hike and you know, I, I, I'm happy with a small life, so. Wow. Well, let me tell you something. I cannot thank you enough. I can't thank you for writing this book, um, writing this book with Oprah. I can't thank you enough for, I think that, and, and by the way, um, I, I said this, you know, to read a book that has graphs in it, you, you know, not my thing, but I did it. I loved it. I am, I can't wait. I'm getting ready to jump on a plane um, and I'm going to listen to it on the audio, which by the way, I've already read this book. Um, and just thank you. Thank you for being what, as you know, I say, and I wear a t-shirt that says it, be a good human. Um, I think it's up to all of us to be good humans, but we also need to understand where other people come from. And, you know, and I can't thank you enough. Listen, everybody, this has been the most amazing episode. I cannot thank Dr. Perry enough. Please do us a big favor. Share, share, share. No matter what platform you're listening to this podcast. And by the way, those who have subscribed to our YouTube channel, you, you've actually sent me messages and said, are we actually going to be able to see him? you can see him. Just subscribe to our YouTube channel and share and understand something. Each and every one of us, we have a story. We have a story and we never know how that story will impact someone's life or much less, how did it impact us? And that's something I never thought about. All the years you can go back and hear the speeches I've get, I've never said that before, but this book, this book made me realize that my story actually impacted me. Again, until we talk again, be part of the change. Take care, everyone. I would like to thank all of you for listening to the Fostering Change podcast. You can subscribe on all of your favorite podcast streaming platforms, including Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Make sure you follow Comfort Cases on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter at Comfort Cases. Check out the Fostering Change blog at comfortcases.org. And I know some of you have a question, and I know some of you would love to be a guest. Please personally reach out to me at fosteringchange at comfortcases.org. That's fostering change at comfortcases.org. Then do me a big favor. Please help spread the word. Share this podcast. Share it with your friends and your family. Remember, I say this quite often, we're all part of the same community. And that community, it's not our zip code, but our human race. Let's all make a difference.